Hello, Gateway. This is Ron and Susan Martin, and we will be reading Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 17. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? Good morning. Welcome to Gateway Online. Uh, my name is Ed, and I'm one of the pastors here at Gateway. We're in the middle of a series of conversations called Not How We Imagine, and we're actually working our way through the Old Testament book of Malachi. Plus, we're doing a four-week devotional together outside of Sunday mornings, reinforcing the same material. I hope you're joining us for those. Now, if you've gotten behind on the devotional, just hang in there and keep working away at it. I really believe it'll be worth it. If you've not started yet, join us. Uh, the material is available on mygateway.life. So today is week four, and today's lesson is really a warning. Malachi focuses our attention on some of the fruits of discouragement and the damage that it does. Here's the point. Sustained discouragement, if it's unchecked, is toxic. If we allow discouragement to dominate our field of vision, if we linger on what makes us discouraged, if we continue to rehearse it, it, it it's toxic. It pollutes our choices. I, I believe it actually pollutes or, or clouds our vision. So our choices may be compromised simply because we can't see clearly. It crushes our vitality. It's toxic. Sustained discouragement, if unchecked, is stifling. It deadens us emotionally. And it literally stunts our growth. We don't become who we were designed to be if we live under the influence of unchecked, sustained discouragement. And it exercises its toxic, stifling influence over everything we do and everything we touch, especially our relationships. I think this is something we often miss. We know how it affects us. We feel it. But sustained, unchecked discouragement also affects our relationships. That's what we learned from the passage Ron and Susan read for us just now. So Malachi starts this argument in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? In other words, why are we doing damage to our relationships? Why are we ignoring our history and our connection to God? How has it come to this? 
He's trying to challenge them about the damage they were doing, the chaos and violence they were creating in their significant relationships. Now, I want to frame this conversation today by reminding us of the context of Malachi's teaching again. Malachi is writing to a people who are experiencing sustained, unchecked discouragement. How do we know that? Well, well <coughs> just look at the questions and, and their observations throughout the passage. How, how have you loved us, God? Our lives don't look like the fruit of your love, chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, how have we defiled you? We're just doing our jobs, chapter 1, verse 6. What a burden it is to follow you, chapter 1, verse 12. It seems like all who do evil are really good in the eyes of the Lord. Look at their lives, chapter 2, verse 17. Where is the God of justice? Why haven't you come through for us, chapter 2, verse 17, etc.? These sentiments are dripping with disappointment. Plus, remember their history. They had returned from exile in Babylon about 530 B.C. They had returned with great excitement and spiritual fanfare. They, they had expected to rebuild the great kingdom of David, to expand the borders of Israel to the ancient limits, and to rebuild the temple to the standard of the ancient temple of Solomon. No, more than that. They, they'd seen great buildings of Bab in Babylon. This temple would, would marvel the world. And none of that had materialized, not even close. Two generations later, the grandchildren of the original returning generation had learned to live with dramatically diminished expectations. Malachi was writing to a people who were nursing sustained, unchecked discouragement. And you know what God's response to them was? He didn't encourage them. He rebuked them. And I believe this is because they have allowed their unchecked discouragement to have free reign in their thoughts and emotions. In particular, they have allowed their unchecked discouragement to do violence to their relationships. So Malachi explains this in verses 10 through 16. He describes two specific ways in which they were doing violence to relationships, or as he put it, breaking faith with one another. <clears throat> and I doubt this is an exhaustive list of their relationship damage, but these are the most obvious relationship breaches. One of these ways they broke faith was at the front end of relationships, and one was at the back end. So first, on the front end of relationships, Malachi points out who they were entering into relationship with. They were, they were breaking faith by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. And check out Malachi's description. He describes this as, look, desecrating the sanctuary the Lord loves. In other words, this intermarrying was polluting their worship. These kinds of relational choices were toxic to the religious atmosphere, toxic to their spiritual lives, violently disrespectful of the sanctuary. Simply put, they were intermarrying with unbelieving neighbors around them. They were bringing the influence of foreign gods into their homes and into their hearts. Why were they doing this? I'm convinced it's because they were living under the toxic, stifling influence of sustained discouragement. Now, I don't mean this was obvious to them or even conscious. They didn't think, oh, I'm discouraged. God hasn't come through for me, so I'm just going to go over here and flirt with this Edomite man and hopefully he'll ask me to marry him. It's never that straightforward, is it? No, I believe they were just like us. After living for some time under the insidious, toxic, stifling press of disappointment, they were just weakened and emotionally deadened, and their vision was clouded. Their thinking was less focused, at least less focused on God and God's desires. 
So one day they passed by an Edomite beauty who was pressing grapes and oh boy, oh boy, I'd like to be a grape right now. And then the next day, perhaps they, they chose to go out of their way just so they could pass by the grape press again, just in case they might see the Edomite. And the third time it happens, they decide to say something, something especially friendly, something especially solicitous. Why not? It's harmless. Just trying to make a pretty girl smile. And I've just described a typical series of unremarkable choices all aimed at dulling the impact of disappointment. This is how it happens, right? We're not conscious of it. We just want some kind of exchange or some kind of entertainment or some kind of pleasure to make ourselves feel alive because sustained, unchecked disappointment deadens us. And when our senses are dulled, when our vision is dimmed, we are not careful. Our choices are compromised. That means when we are living under the influence of sustained, unchecked discouragement, we are susceptible to making bad relational choices on the front end. And that in turn affects our relationship with God. By the way, this principle of intermarrying is not some dead, dusty Old Testament standard. The Apostle Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians 6 not to be, his words, yoked together with unbelievers. In other words, we should be on guard about who we enter into close partnerships with. On the front end of relationships, we should be very careful about who we choose to attach our lives to. This is an important way of protecting our hearts. All right. Let's interrupt Malachi for just a minute. Before we talk about the second relationship problem he raises, we need to clarify something about Malachi's concern here. Let's zero in. And this is important. This is a big one. We have said so far that sustained, unchecked discouragement is toxic and stifling and that it negatively affects our relationship choices. But the same is not true for hardship in general. Hardship is not necessarily toxic, and it's certainly not necessarily stifling. I mean, sometimes hardship actually produces tremendous growth. In fact, some aspects of our growth aren't possible without hardship. You know, healthy trees actually need to be tested by serious winds during their early years. High winds produce a stronger, deeper root system. I think my favorite hymn of all time is an old, not well-known hymn called my God, I thank thee. The lyrics speak to this truth. Listen to this. My God, I'm not going to remember. My God, I thank thee who has made the earth so bright, so full of splendor and of joy, beauty and light. So many glorious things are here, noble and right. I thank thee too that all our joy is touched with pain, that shadows fall on darkest hours, that thorns remain, so that earth's bliss may be our guide and not our chain. For thou who knowest, Lord, how soon our weak heart clings, hast given us joys, tender and true, yet all with wings, so that we see gleaming on high, diviner things. I thank thee, Lord, that here our souls though amply blessed, can never find, although they seek, a perfect rest, nor ever shall until they lean on Jesus' breast. Hardship and difficulty, if handled well, is the right kind of training ground for the soul. Unnecessary training ground, if handled well. You know, the 20th century is full of the stories of heroes who not only overcame hardship, but whose stories became heroic because of the hardship. Gandhi, 
Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, just to name a few, they would not be who they became if it hadn't been for the hardship. I also think of Johnny Tata Erickson. Johnny has a speaking and writing ministry with international influence. Tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people have had the trajectory of their lives altered for the positive because of her ministry. All of this in spite of the fact that Johnny is a quadriplegic as a result of a diving accident when she was 17 years old. I'm sure there are days that Johnny is very, very tired of being the poster child for overcoming difficulty and discouragement. Remember, her days involved not being able to comb her own hair or feed herself or wipe her own bottom. But hardship has not defined her life. She has not allowed the constant hardship to result in sustained discouragement. And as a result, her life has grown larger and not smaller. Some of us are experiencing extreme hardship today and the circumstances surrounding the global pandemic have just exaggerated the hardship. But hardship does not necessarily have to be toxic or stifling. It can be exactly the opposite. It can produce a deeper, stronger root system. But unchecked, sustained discouragement which is a particular kind of response to hardship, is always toxic, always stifling. And that negativity always oozes out to the very corners of our lives, compromising all of our relationships and our relationship choices. You may think that your discouragement over your child's special challenges has not affected your work or your marriage, but it has. You may think that your unchecked discouragement over your job or your singleness or your life in general isn't affecting the friendship and partnership choices you make, but you're wrong. When, hard, when hardship comes, we can certainly ask why. We can even get lost in that question. We can prosecute God. We have evidence against him. We can feel sorry for ourselves. There's good reason to do so. We can look for alternate ways to dull the pain. We can grab for moments of pleasure wherever we can find them. I mean, it certainly feels good to do so. It's the only thing that seems to feel good. Or we can thank God. We can remember his love. We can pursue him with earnest hearts, offering our best to him. We can remember that this hardship is a tutor teaching us to find our real satisfaction on the breast of Jesus. Now, let's return to Malachi's argument. Remember we said that they were breaking faith with one another at the front end and at the back end of relationships. Well, the second way in which they were breaking faith involved being unfaithful at the ending of relationships. That is, they were divorcing one another. They were ending their marriage covenants. Malachi lays out the case for the second issue, beginning in verse 13. And there's something about the case he lays out that we absolutely shouldn't miss. So listen to the flow of his argument. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, he begins. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. Uh, he's, he's picking up steam, isn't he? And, and here's the thing we must not miss. They were still going through the motions of religious observance. They were still making offerings, still going to the altar. They were even grieved that they seemed to be disconnected from God. It seemed to them like he wasn't paying attention to their prayers. It seemed like their religious life was ineffective. And, and Malachi agreed. He stated it as a fact. He no longer pays attention to your offerings, he said. In other words, it is not just your imagination. God was not pleased with their worship. Repeat, God was not pleased with their worship. 
Evidently, checking the religious observance box is not enough. Why? And in their case, Malachi answers in verse 14. You ask why? It's because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner and the wife of your marriage covenant. So there in those two verses, did you catch the the don't miss thing that I referred to? We absolutely must get this. What we do in our relationships with one another affects our relationship with God and vice versa. If we break faith in the one, we do violence to the other. If we make unrighteous choices in our relationships, we desecrate our worship. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle John riffs on this exact same theme. He says, essentially, you simply can't say you love God and hate your brother. So you cannot destroy your marriage covenant and suspect that things will go just fine in your relationship with God. Malachi offers a fascinating justification for this point that should serve as a serious warning to all of us who are parents. Verse 15, he continues, Hasn't the Lord made them one? He's talking about married couples. In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. You see, part of the danger we allow for when we do violence to our marriages is the potential we create for derailing our children. We remove our children from the optimal environment for them to grow godly character. Now stay with me for a minute. There are a couple of important observations to make about this. First, about this, he's not suggesting that childless marriages are second class in any way. We shouldn't read this passage as suggesting that the only mission of marriage is to have godly children anymore. We should read a passage like this and think that God doesn't care about single people. I'm convinced in verse 15, Malachi is thinking of the parents in his audience. He's not arguing that you need to produce kids. He's arguing that the children you have produced, assuming you're a parent, Well, your principal desire should be that they be godly. Why should we remain committed to your, why should you remain committed to your marriage? Because that marriage represents the optimal environment for your children to become godly people. And clearly, one of the main purposes for couples who have children is to raise godly children. That means this part of the argument is a clear endorsement for the sanctity of a nuclear family. I know that's a controversial topic in our culture right now, but it shouldn't be. I believe we've moved away from common sense, much less moving away from our anchoring in biblical truth. Husbands and wives working together in sync with one another spiritually, committed to their relationship and committed to being committed, at least in part because of the children. That's the right environment for kids to be nurtured into a relationship with God and into godly character. Now, let me make a second observation about this whole argument that Malachi is making here in this part. Let's let's step aside for a second and recognize that some of you are raising children in a different environment. That's just the reality. Some of you, parents, you're divorced. You've already done violence to your marriage covenant. And some of you parents, you've never been married. You've, You've never had a spiritual covenant partner. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean you have forever failed. It doesn't mean your kids cannot develop godly character. Our God is in the business of making up for our deficits. It's pretty much constant work for him concerning all of us. Plus, mistakes made in the past, once we genuinely ask for forgiveness, 
Those mistakes are in the past. I mean, Psalm 103 goes so far as to say our sins are separated from us. Our sins from us as far as east is from west. And that's not some point in the east separated from some point in the west. That's the idea of east versus the idea of west. That's a lot of separation. And one more thing. Paul reminds us that when we have a real connection to God because of what Jesus Christ has done, there's simply no condemnation left. We are free from condemnation. So if you think you've blown it, welcome to the club. We are a collection of the ones who have blown it. And God is very capable of forming your children into exactly what they were meant to be in spite of your having blown it. Having said that, we must be honest. God's design and the path of least resistance is still husbands and wives working together in sync with one another spiritually, committed to their relationship, and committed to being committed, at least in part, because of the children. This is God's best. Then he wraps up in verse 16. Now, let me offer a boring side note about uh, the translation here in verse 16. Uh, verse 16 of this passage is evidently a tricky verse to translate from Hebrew into English. And part of the problem is that the subject isn't clearly supplied. So it's not immediately clear who hates what. In most older translations, it's rendered, God hates divorce, says the Lord of hosts, the Lord God of Israel. Now, it's abundantly clear that God is not happy at all about divorce. I think we've established that. But it may be that verse 16 has been misrepresented and, and that misrepresentation may have amounted to an overstatement. Here's what I mean. The newest translations in both the New International Version and in the English Standard Version, two different translations which we tend to use here at Gateway, both of these and the best commentaries suggest that this verse should read, for the man who hates his wife and divorces her, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. I think this translation not only makes the best sense of the Hebrew, but it also makes the best sense of the passage. So listen, God is not hating you or your divorce. You are the one who acted on hate. God is grieved, and the violence you've done has had an impact on your connections, including your connection to God. Now that's the truth. But again, rewind the tape to the part about making up for our deficiencies and about forgiveness. But before we can do either of those things, we must admit our deficiencies and ask for forgiveness. We must accept the truth. So the way forward, and there is a healthy, exciting way forward, but it begins with an honest assessment of where we've blown it. So how did these Israelites get to this point? How did they end up breaking faith in their marriages so casually? Well, they ended up in this place because of the toxicity and the stifling impact of sustained, unchecked disappointment. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Malachi says in verse 17, How have we wearied him, you ask, by, by saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. He, he must be pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? In other words, it just doesn't pay to be good because God doesn't come through for you if you are. The wicked prosper, so it, it must be that they are the ones who find favor with God. And, and where are you, God? Why don't you come through for us? Our, our lives are decidedly not how we imagined they'd be. Where is your justice? Overall, 
I hope we can all see what, what a severe warning this is to us about the dangers of sustained disappointment. Now, next week, we're actually going to answer that question about where God is. And it's a jarring answer. But we need, to, we need to sit with Malachi's rebuke. We need to be reminded of the catastrophic consequences of allowing ourselves to live under the influence of unchecked disappointment. And evidently, we can do better. I mean, God knows how trying our circumstances are. He knows what we're going through. And evidently, He believes we can do it. Look, willpower is not enough. You already know this from trying to overcome your own very bad habits. You especially know this if, if you've struggled with addiction of any kind. Willpower is not enough. We need community. That's why we talk about it so much here at Gateway. We need support. We need encouragement. We need occasional rebukes. Willpower is not enough. Plus, more than anything else, we need the Holy Spirit. We need God's power released in us. We, we will not get it done without that. Our willpower is not enough. But... Our willpower is required. When hardship comes, we can certainly ask why. We can even get lost in that question. We can prosecute God. We have evidence against Him. We can feel sorry for ourselves. There's good reason to do so. We can look for alternate ways to dull the pain. We can, we can grab for moments of pleasure wherever we can find them. I mean, it certainly feels good to do so. It's the only thing that seems to feel good in the moment. Or we can thank God we can remember His love. We can pursue Him with earnest hearts, offering our best to Him. We can find Christian community and pursue it and lean into it. And we can remember that this hardship is a tutor teaching us to find our real satisfaction on the breast of Jesus. I thank Thee, Lord, that here our souls, though amply blessed, can never find, although they seek, a perfect rest, nor ever shall until they lean on Jesus' breast. Let's pray. So, Father, we, uh, we hear your warning. We hear the rebuke in it. We recognize the ways in which we have made relationship choices uh, out of sustained, unchecked disappointment. And we recognize that the fruit of those, apart from your intervention, is disaster. And so, first of all, this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, you told us to pray in your name, Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name that you would intervene that you would forgive us for the ways in which we have made disastrous choices on the front and the back end of our relationships, distancing ourselves from others, breaking faith and, and distancing ourselves from you, and not even recognizing all of the violence that we've done and all the consequences of that. We're so sorry. And once again, we appeal to you to make up for what is lacking in our lives. It's your specialty, and we're, we, I don't know, Lord, we're sorry yet again to, to fall on to, to fall back on your grace, but we, ha we, we must.
And so we do. We ask you to forgive us. And we ask you to, Lord, make right the damage that we have done. And beyond that, Lord, we also pray for protection. We pray that you would protect us against those choices in the future. I pray especially for our young people. God, guard their hearts and their lives and their choices. And I pray, Father, for the young people in this church that their choices would not grow out of discouragement, but that they would grow out of a vital connection with you, that that would inform their vision, that their field of view, their field of vision would would be dominated by you and a relationship with you and your expectations and your desires. I also pray that, Lord, over all of our lives, that going forward, we we would lean into you, that we would thank you, that we would receive hardship as a tutor, that we would not allow discouragement to seep into our bones and then just fill our system. Instead, we would, we would seek you. Hear us today, Lord, as we pray mostly for protection and as we pray prayers of repentance. We need you, and this topic for some of us makes us more aware of that than almost any topic. They hear us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.